Good morning. Thank you, Pastor. Uh, I hope you folks understand that you're blessed to have Pastor Wells. He's in the minority of pastors who actually take Scripture fully at its word and doesn't avoid this issue. Too many pastors avoid the issue of creation or are compromised and say, oh yeah, old earth and billions of years. We're going to start with the most difficult topic of the day and it'll get easier as the day goes on. So the toughest one is the first one, the age of the universe. So I'm just going to make a couple points. If you get these couple points, that's the main thing. One is that gravity affects how fast time runs. Gravity affects how fast time runs. So you say, so that means time can run at different speeds in different places, and the answer is yes. Sounds weird, but that's the way it is. All right, so gravity slows down time. So that's how we can see stars in the telescopes that are way out there, huge distances away, but yet still have an Earth that's only a little over 6,000 years old. That's the bottom line of this talk. Gravity affects time. Now, I'm going to try and give you more explanations so you have a better clue as to how this very complicated topic works. So Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And we are so blessed compared to earlier uh, generations who didn't have the benefit of these telescopes to be able to see these gorgeous pictures of what's out there, like these clouds of gas and dust. So, you know, other folks could just see the stars with their, with their naked eye and that was it. But we have beautiful, beautiful photos of stuff out there that makes this verse even more amplified. So here we have a couple astronomers in the uh, foreground with their black marker having put it on the rim around the lens and so that's how the other astronomer got a black eye. Okay, so we're going to talk about distance first. <clears throat> Just look at those stars tonight, the one ant says to the other, makes you feel sort of small and insignificant. Yeah. All right, so what is a light year? Well, it's the distance light travels in one year. Well, how fast is that? How fast does light travel? These numbers get so big, they're really hard to grasp. 186,000 miles per second. So you multiply that times 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days, and you get nearly 6 trillion miles in one year. So this is a measure of distance not time. And the thing is, the evolutionists assume, and that's the word underlying so much of their thinking, assume, that it also is a measure of time. And that is a major reason they get off on the wrong track. So it's only a measure of distance, not a measure of time. That's the other big point you need to grasp. Okay, the light year is a measure of distance and not time. So here we have the uh, space shuttle take, and it took Hubble up into the orbit around the Earth. So there's Earth, and there you can see Hubble there having come in. And so with that and the other even greater, larger telescopes on the ground that we're building now, we can see a minimum of 13 0.7 billion light years. Now remember, this is a distance. So multiply almost 6 trillion times 13.7 billion, and that's how many miles we're talking as a radius of the universe. These numbers are just huge. Now that's how far we can see. The universe is probably significantly larger. And as we develop these stronger telescopes will be able to see further. So that's why I say at least 
13.7 billion light years for the radius of the universe. Well, uh, at my alma mater, the University of Arizona, is the world's premier telescope grinding laboratory. And it's under the east side of the football stadium. <laughs> and this, if you see, you look at the back, you see there's a person standing over there. That gives you an idea of how large this lens is. And it's not a solid chunk of glass. They're very clever in how they design this. There's a honeycomb frame underneath this so that the, the glass is only a fraction of that total volume. And they also have, <clears throat> have this device spin around as the glass is cooling. So that gives it a good part of that concave shape that it needs that they don't have to grind down so much. So the amount of grinding is much less. But nevertheless, it takes quite a few years to make one lens. And there are seven of them in total that will be combined in this design here. Uh, and these are going to be placed, some of them are already in place, uh, in this site. It's in, uh, down in Chile, in the Atacama Desert, up on the mountaintop. You can see they flatten the mountaintop there. And, uh, so the combined power of these seven lenses will all be focused uh, together in one spot. So the, this will be much more powerful than Hubble. And the other reason uh, that they now can use these ground-based telescopes with uh, excellent uh, um, resolution is that they use computers to compensate for the fluctuations in the atmosphere and are able to have adjustments in the lenses themselves. It's, it's, it's hard to understand all this. But they can compensate for the fluctuation in the air, the atmosphere. And, and since they're building it so high on this dry, dry desert climate, there's less atmosphere to deal with. So these, the images that are going to come from this are going to be something else. Okay, what about time? Okay, there's, you know, time is a major issue. Uh, the biblical time frame being just over 6,000 years versus these claims of billions of years. Well, this is a way of picturing the evolutionary concept that they say when the Big Bang happened, that was the beginning of the universe, and then through these various stages, the with the energy became matter, and then finally uh, atoms formed from the subatomic particles, and then we get helium and hydrogen, and finally stars form, and then finally galaxies form. That's what they're saying. Starting outward in, because you look at the scale here at the bottom, zero is at the right, meaning that's the oldest part. That's the oldest part. And so then you get down to 13.7, and that's where Earth is. So this is a way of understanding their concept of, of the universe and how it, how it came into being to its present form and shape. But this is all assumption. It's all assumption. Well, the biblical time frame is given to us in chapters 5, 10, and 11 of Genesis, plus history recorded since then. And it's just doing the simple math involving the, the numbers given to us in Scripture with the age of the patriarch when firstborn son occurred, and his age, and then when his firstborn, and on and on. And so that's how we get a little over 6,000 years for the time frame since the creation of the universe, the world, everything. And this is recorded history. This is reliable. Now, there's argument about the word day and how it's used in the first chapter of Genesis because the word does have, in Hebrew as in English, three different meanings. It can mean an era, a time, such as back in my grandfather's day, and what a perfect place here in Chloride to be, and using that phrase. <laughs> I love it. So, you know, an indefinite time period, but an era. It took four days for 24-hour periods, 
to drive across the Arizona desert during the day, meaning the portion of the 24 hours when the sun is up and shining. Well, in Hebrew, there also are these three different meanings, but there are ways to know what is actually meant very clearly in Genesis chapter 1. So when you look at the rest of the Old Testament, the word day is used 410 times with a number. There's a number in this, the, right there with the word day or days, plural. But it always means an ordinary 24-hour type day. Or the phrase evening or morn morning, either one. Without day still means, evening and morning still means an ordinary day. Evening or morning, 23 times, still means an ordinary day. And then night with day, 52 times, always means an ordinary day. So you have these qualifiers, a number, evening, morning, and night. So when any of those are used with the word day, it has to mean an ordinary 24-hour day. So when we look at chapter 1 of Genesis, you see here that for each day, each, the, the verses regarding each day, the multiple qualifiers are there. And you see it, night, evening, morning, a number. Evening, morning, number, evening, morning, number, and so on. So these must be, according to the grammar, 24-hour days. There's no room for making each of them some long, long, long period of time. And then we have confirmation of the 24-hour character of the days in Exodus 20.11 in the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. So this is not saying that he made the heavens and earth and the sea in six very long periods of time and then rested on a long period of time because this is the commandment for us to follow that example for us to work six rest one not work six long periods of time millions or billions of years each and then rest one long period of time does that make sense all right so that's that's the very huge difference in the time frame reference between the evolutionary model and what scripture has to say. Now, this one gets a bit more complicated. Choosing to interpret some evidence, the evolutionists say that the universe is expanding. So that's why I put is expanding and have it crossed out. And then I have was stretched because scripture tells us at least 17 times that God stretched the heavens. So here we have it in Job and Psalms. And notice it says stretches out like a tent curtain. Well, there's a limit to how much a tent or a curtain can be stretched. You can stretch it a certain amount and that's it no further expansion. Well, in Isaiah, stretches out like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent, referring to the heavens. And in Jeremiah, and in Zechariah, and 12 other places. So, when God repeats something, it's something he considers to be very important. So for us to understand that it's simply stretching that has been accomplished, a limited stretching that was done and then finished. So that's very important as we get through some more of these concepts here. Now, does the universe have an edge and a center or not? So the general way most people understand this is that there is a space that contains the stars, the galaxies, with an edge and a center. And that's also the biblical 
model here. And that when the stars were created, they expanded the, into this stretching, into this space, a pre-existing space. Well, we have that given to us in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, started time. So there was eternity past, and then this verse starts time. And in the heavens refers to the space, the place to put the stuff. doesn't mean the stars. It means just the space. And then earth refers to not the completed planet, but to the elements, the atoms, the stuff that from which he formed the earth, sun, moon, stars, and everything else in the universe. So over the next three days, the first three days, the earth was formed in stages, and then on day four is when the sun, moon, and stars were created. Notice it's the earth before the sun, moon, and stars, the day before. But the evolutionary concept is, is quite different. It says there is no edge to the universe, no center to the universe, and it's a three-dimensional space that expands with the matter so that everything is getting further apart from everything else. Now, why they say there's no edge and center, we'll get to in a few slides. It's kind of hard to picture this, but we'll make an attempt. So here's just a reminder, though, that that earlier slide I showed you with the oldest part of the universe being weighed out there at the edge and the Earth at the center is not how they look at the shape of the universe. That's just to try and give you an idea of their time frame, of what happens in those supposed 13.7 billion years. This is a way to try and picture what they're saying. So think of this balloon that has everything on the surface of the balloon. All the stars, planets, moons, galaxies, everything is on the surface of the balloon. And the surface is expanding. So there's no edge and there's no center. There's nothing inside of it. There's nothing outside of it. But then you have to add another dimension to it, like so. But there's still no edge and there's still no center. And you say, I'm having trouble picturing that. And I say, that's because you're being logical. Okay. So you have to perform mental gymnastics to, to try and picture this kind of a model. So what you see is, at all costs, they're avoiding this idea of the universe having a center and an edge. And we'll get to that. So why do evolutionists presuppose, assume, that the universe has neither a center nor an edge? And that gets us to what I said at the beginning. Gravity slows down time. Gravity slows down time. Okay, so here's Albert Einstein, brilliant, brilliant genius who figured out mathematically that in, indeed gravity slows down time. Now, in his day, it was still a theory. But now we have experimental evidence to show he was absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. So since gravity distorts time, you see here that two identical atomic clocks, they're very sensitive, they can measure time down to tiny fractions of seconds with many zeros after the decimal point. So these two identical atomic clocks, one is placed in Greenwich, England at sea level, and the other one is placed in Colorado, mile high. And so the one that's higher is runs faster because gravity is a bit less strong at that altitude. And the one down at sea level runs a bit slower. Now, the difference is very, very small. We can't perceive it. We can't sense the, distance, the difference. 
but it's measurable and accurately so. So when that same type of atomic clock is put into a 747 and flown way up high, then the difference is much greater. So that's been done. Then the other thing is that going faster slows down time as well. Uh, so that's all in his equations. So very, very brilliant fellow. So here you see then uh, space shuttle and uh, space station and up there time runs more quickly because there's less gravity. And you say, what? Yeah, time runs more quickly. And he says, listen, I think we better keep this quiet. Okay. Well, there's a practical application to this. Okay, we all use GPS systems to go around and find out where we are. Well, those satellites are pretty high. And the time difference is significant enough that they have to put in a correction for the difference in the speed of time up there compared to the surface so that the device tells you where you really are in real time. Otherwise, if they didn't correct for that difference of the speed of time due to the gravity being weaker at that elevation, it would tell you you're somewhere where you're not. So this is real. This is not just theoretical stuff. This is very real. So if we look at this on a universal scale, that if indeed there is an edge and a center to the universe, that on day four of creation week, there would be a monstrous difference in the strength of gravity at the center versus out there at the edge. Giant difference. And that time on Earth during day four, when the, the stars and the moon and moons and the galaxies were all being made, there would, time would be running phenomenally faster out there than on Earth, with Earth being at the center of the universe. Have I lost you? Okay. So think of this well pictured here as the gravity, representing the gravity, strength of gravity. So at where it dips down, gravity would be phenomenally strong compared to on the rim out there. So because of that, time would be very, very slow, actually momentarily even stop at Earth. But out there, it's running so fast, that's how you can have billions of years passing out there by the clock out there, where the clock on Earth is going very slowly. So that's the thing to grasp, even if you can't understand it. Gravity slows down time. So that at the Earth, things would be going very slowly out there, very, very rapidly. So that is how we can have an Earth that's a little over 6,000 years old, but a universe that is much older, billions of years. That's the point to grasp. Now, the gory details behind all that, don't worry. <laughs> they, get, they get pretty difficult to grasp. So then, the question is, is, does the universe have a center and an edge? Do we have evidence, observable evidence, to show where the Earth is? And the answer is, yes, we do. All right, so here is a representation of what's called the electromagnetic spectrum, in other words, energy, at very, very high intense energy to the left, gamma waves, and as it slows down, x-rays, and finally you get to ultraviolet, then you get to that very narrow band of, of wavelength, 
that we can see, visible light. And then we have infrared, and then the slower things, microwave, and finally radio waves, very, very long waves, lower energy, much lower energy. That's why X-rays and gamma rays are lethal, because the energy is so high, those energy waves break up our molecules, our DNA, and that's what kills us or causes cancer. That's why you get shielded with the lead aprons and stuff when you have X-rays taken so that only the part that needs to be pictured gets the radiation. All right, so the point here is there's these different energy waves, links, different links, different powers of energy. All right, well, so you see here a prism breaks up light in the same way that raindrops in the sky when the sun is shining breaks up light and forms the rainbow. So some of those waves of energy, light waves, are slower than others. Some are faster than others. So red is the slower and uh, blue is, I'm sorry, yeah, red is slower and blue is the faster. So here's an analogy to help understand this. A train is approaching, you're stopped at the crossing where the, the uh, road's going to cross the tracks, and as the whistle's being blown, it sounds very high-pitched, right? You've experienced this? And then after the train passes, the pitch drops, and it sounds much lower. Well, that's because as the train is approaching you, these waves are being compressed as it approaches you, as it comes at you, and that makes them shorter wavelengths, higher energy, and that's called a blue shift because the, the, the waves are being compressed by the train coming towards you. Well, after the train passes you, now the waves are decompressed, they're slowed down because it's going away from you as the sound comes towards you. And that's why the pitch drops, because the, the sound waves are longer. And the same thing with light. It shifts to the longer, the red end. So that's how there's a change in the color, a change in the wavelength, whether something's coming at you or coming away, going away from you. All right, so when the object is going away from you, they, that's called red shift because the waves get shifted in the red direction because the object's going away from you. All right, that's called the Doppler effect. All right, so there you are, red away from the observer to the blue toward the observer. Well, we see this red shift in the light coming from the stars we're observing. Now, it's interpreted to mean that things are moving away from us or blue shift moving toward us. Now, there's other reasons for red shift, which we won't even touch, but this is the way the evolutionists look at the, at the picture in the universe. But these measurements of the change in the wavelength of the light, the redshift, can be used to measure distance using a mathematical formula. And so when we observe the light from these galaxies that are out there, we can see using this mathematical formula that these galaxies are at intervals. They're clumped together at intervals further and further away from Earth and that these intervals are regularly spaced. So this tells us that the stars are not just evenly spaced out, or the galaxies are not evenly spaced out in the universe. They're actually clumped together in regular distances away from the Earth in, in concentric spheres. So picture like Earth being a uh, BB and then Around that is a ping-pong ball, and around that is a hollow softball, and then maybe after that a volleyball, and then a basketball, and beach ball, and so on. 
of these concentric spheres. So using Hubble's law and math, they convert this to distance, and, and so they've calculated that these concentric spheres are about 3.1 million light years apart from each other further out. So on the left-hand side here, you see this regular pattern. And for this regular pattern to show like this, Earth has to be at the center of all of these concentric spheres. On the right-hand side, if the position of Earth is just shifted two million light years from the center, then it all blurs out and you don't get these patterns. You can't see the patterns because the Earth is not at the center. Now you say two million light years, that sounds like a big distance. Well, it is, but consider two million out of 13.7 billion, it's just a tiny bit. So a different way to picture this is, here is Earth at the center, and these, these are concentric spheres. Now remember, this is three dimension, although I can only show it to you in two dimensions. So think, remember, these are spheres, concentric spheres like this. So you see here with Earth to center, that pattern is discernible. Okay, so there's Earth at the center. But shift Earth just two million light years and the pattern blurs out. See, does that make that easier to grasp? So this shows that Earth has to be at the center of the universe in order to be able to see this pattern. It's very strong evidence that the Earth is at the center. Well, here is actually a digital map of galaxies, and you can see that there are these arcs of these portions of these concentric spheres as you go further and further out from Earth. So then I just replicated that in reverse in the other direction. And then you say to yourself, well, why is this only showing this V-shaped portion? Why doesn't it show all the way around? Well, Earth is in a galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. And we can't see through the galaxy sideways because of all the light. So we can see up out of the galaxy or down out of the galaxy. But we can't see through the galaxy sideways because there's so much light. It blocks everything out. So there is a view of a spiral galaxy. We see spiral galaxies out there, and it's been determined by observation that ours is also a spiral galaxy. And you see a little line pointing to a dot where Earth is. And Earth is in the space in between the arms of the spiral galaxy. And God put it there so that we could see out of the galaxy into the universe. Because if Earth was placed in the middle of one of those arms, there'd be so much light, we wouldn't be able to see out. See, you guys have a great view of the stars here, right? There's so little ambient light here, you see the stars. Okay, we live in the Phoenix area, and we don't get to see too many stars. We have to leave town and come here to see the stars. Does that make sense? All right. Okay. So Wayne Gibbs is a dyed-in-the-wool evolutionist, brilliant man, very smart. He's also very honest. And he said, for instance, I can construct you a spherically symmetrical universe with Earth at its center. And you cannot disprove it based on observations. Wow, this is an amazing admission. Spherically symmetrical universe, Earth at the center, cannot disprove it based on observations. You can only exclude it on philosophical grounds. Aha, here's the key. Only exclude it on philosophical grounds. 
This is why the evolutionists assume no center and no edge to the universe because they understand what Einstein's equations show. Not, it's not theory anymore, it's actual observation with these data I showed you with these concentric circle uh, spheres of stars with Earth at the center. And because they understand that gravity slows down time. And if Earth is at the center and there's an edge, then Earth can be very young and the stuff out there can be very old and scripture is right on. That's the key thing to grasp. Are we there? <laughs> yes, no? Are you there? Okay. That, that, when my students do this, I say, no, you're not there. <laughs> okay, so, gravity slows down time. If there's a center and Earth is at it, time would be running much more slower on day four than out there as God is creating the sun, moon, and stars on day four. So without there, there's no gravity out there because the stuff hasn't been created out there yet until day four. So as he does it, then time runs very fast out there by those clocks, but time actually momentarily comes to a standstill on Earth. But if anybody was alive, which nobody was yet, because it's only day four, they wouldn't even know the difference. So that's how we can have a young Earth, 6,000 years plus, and a universe that has billions of years. Now, yes? Okay. Well, it's more complicated. Just say on day four, it went real fast. From our reference, it's faster, but it's not faster than Yeah. Well, there would be nobody out there. But that's right. They wouldn't know it because they're, they're, they're with their clocks, and they wouldn't know that there's a difference. But, but there weren't any people yet anyway until day six. So it didn't matter. So is that still going on? No, 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 no. This is during day four. During day four. Right. So there's not a time difference. Well, no, clocks do run differently. This is I showed you with the GPS system. Yes, there still is today a different speed of time in different places. Well, you had a problem. <laughs> it's a good thing you weren't walking further out, just looking at your GPS. I know, I know. Okay. All right. Are we there? Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the heavens. So, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So this is on day one. So from starting from scripture, uh, Dr. Russell Humphreys uh, has calculated that everything was a giant ball of water because here it says the face of the water. So if there's a face and there's a face of the deep, that means there's three dimensions. That means it's, there's this huge ball of water. And he calculated that that ball of water would be probably 20 light years across. So that's 120 trillion miles across. And from that giant ball of water is what the universe was made out of. How's that to blow your mind? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I said this is the pastor chose the toughest subject to start with. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's let's go back to the face of the deep. So here's the face of the deep as it says in day one. Then God said, let there be light. All right. And there was light. And where'd that light come from? Him. Came from him. All right. So there's light. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. So some translations use the word firmament others use the word expanse same thing same concept so now there's an expanse with waters below the expanse and waters above the expanse so that's what he did on day two 
separating the waters below from the waters above by putting a space, an expanse, a firmament in between. And here's still the face of the deep. All right. So now, you see here the waters below, the firmament, and the waters above, and the light coming from God. And so there you are. So that's how we have day and night, even from day one, is because he said, you know, let there be a separation of the light from the darkness, let there be light. Day one. All right, so here we are. Waters above the firmament, and the firmament's that very thin, darker blue line. And so now we talked about that stretching of the heavens. So 17 verses, the stretching of the heavens on day four. And as it continues to stretch, then he's take, using the waters above to make the stars and the galaxies and the dust and all the other stuff out there. And so that's the stretching on day four, like so. And this is where the business of, of gravity and the speed of time is going on. All right, so we get this far out. So here we have the, still the waters below, the expanse, and the expanse is the space, the cosmos, the stuff to put the stars in, and then the waters above the expanse. Okay, so the expanse equals the firmament, the cosmos, the place where all the stars and galaxies go. So then, in Scripture, on day four, we have, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And so, for example, here, uh, if you can make out the red lines, you see the constellation Orion. Okay, so this is one of the signs that, for example, farmers would use to know when to plant crops. Or uh, the stars used by sailors at night to navigate. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. So the sun and the moon. Now they appear to be the same size. And how is that? Well, it's because the sun has a diameter 400 times greater than the moon, but the sun is also 400 times further away from the earth than the moon. So that's why how they appear to be the same size. And that's no accident because that's how we have these perfect solar eclipses which are very important because it's through the solar eclipses that we learned about the helium, existence of helium in the sun before we found it on Earth. And that's why it's named helium, because helios, the Greek word for sun. And we learned all so much more about this other stuff, about this refraction of light and all these other things, properties of light from the other stars because of the total solar eclipses. So God made it that way so we could learn and study. Well, here in Psalm 148, there is this reference to the waters above the heavens. So the waters above the expanse, the waters above the heavens. And then also in uh, the last part of verse 16, I, I think this is a scream. So we have these huge number of stars out there, trillions upon billions upon quadrillions of stars out there. And in English, they get five words. He made the stars also. In Russian, they get four words. All right, so here is one of those gorgeous pictures with all these stars. Makes you jealous that we can't see them like these guys. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens, across the face of the expanse. So the rest of the expanse, the firmament, the cosmos, the universe is out there. The face of the expanse is where the atmosphere stops 
and outer space begins. And then we have, whoa, what's this? This is Ruppel's vulture. How high can Ruppel's vulture fly? Doesn't that blow your mind? 37,000 feet? That's as high as these airplanes that go across the ocean. Isn't that amazing? And, and it, its hemoglobin can extract the oxygen and the bird can fly up that high. Amazing. Oh, who do we have here? This is the common crane and it can fly as high as 33,000 feet. And then we have this critter here, the bar-headed goose, and it can fly 29,500 feet high. And what's your reference point? Whoops. Uh, it doesn't show it. Okay, just over 29,000, a few feet over 29,000 is Mount Everest. So all three of those can fly higher than Everest. Amazing. So that's the face of the expanse. How did they determine it? I mean, you know, did they see a bird up that high? Yeah, they track them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, they track them. They can put these little gizmos on these birds. And, yeah. So here you see the waters above, then 13.7 billion light years at this point in time. It'll probably change. And then the atmosphere. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians says, I know a man who was caught up to paradise, caught up to the third heaven, third heaven. And then here we have in Luke, glory to God in the highest heaven. Well, to have highest, you have to have three, high, higher, highest. All right, so here we have Earth and the first heaven, the atmosphere. Second heaven is the cosmos, the universe, with the physical matter. And then the third heaven would be beyond the waters above, where there's no physical stuff. Okay, first, second, and third heaven. So that's why it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. Okay, matter had a beginning or not? Says, a small piece of extremely dense matter got into my nose. Sorry, big a chew, not the Big Bang. Okay, there's only three possibilities. The universe created itself, has always existed, or was created by an external outside agent. Okay, let's look at the first one. The universe created itself. Well, until a couple of years ago, Lawrence Krauss was a professor at Arizona State University of Physics, and he had this great talent of writing the word nothing backwards on a clear uh, panel so that the audience could read it as he wrote it, because his big deal was he wrote a book called The Universe from Nothing, and he tried to come up with an explanation of how it came into being from nothing and not by God. Well, other physicists said, yeah, this is gobbledygook. But he had his moment of fame. Well, again, here's that business of where the stuff exploded and the evolutionists never want to talk about where the stuff to go bang with came from because they can't explain where it came from. They just want to talk about what happened after it went bang. So all this stuff progressing from pure energy to, fine, to the uh, subatomic particles finally forming atoms and finally stars and then finally galaxies and finally our solar system and the rest of us evolving along. All right, so it says here, helium light can finally shine at that point. Uh, this is great imagination. You have to have great imagination to be an evolutionist. So that's this very complicated stuff. These guys who are very smart, they're very brilliant, but there's a difference between wisdom and smarts. Difference between wisdom and smarts. And here, anybody recognize this scene? 
It's from the movie The Sound of Music, right? And there's Maria and the captain singing their love to each other in the gazebo there. And she says, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. She sings this out. Well, a Broadway lyricist and composer got it right. Okay. Ex nihilo nihilo feet. From nothing, nothing comes. So that's the way it is. Nothing can invent itself before it exists. So scratch that one. How about the universe has always existed? All right. I'm going to use a word that's real scary, thermodynamics. All right. All it means is heat motion. That's all it means, heat motion. All right. There are, two, there are several laws of thermodynamics, uh, but we're only going to talk about the first two. This dotted line going across the top, that's, that straight across, represents the total amount of energy and matter, total amount of energy and matter in the universe. And that is neither energy nor matter can be created nor destroyed. Neither energy nor matter can be created nor destroyed. That is the number one most fundamental law of all science. And exceptions have never been found. So that's why that dotted line is straight across. Total amount of energy and matter. Now you can convert energy to matter and matter to energy, such as the atomic bomb converts a tiny bit of matter into a huge amount of energy, destroying cities. But the total amount of energy and matter is constant. That goes back to Genesis 1.1. Okay, this curved line now represents the second law of thermodynamics, that the amount of energy that's available to do work, available to do work is decreasing. The total amount is the same, but the amount that's available to do work is decreasing. So you're in your red hot, Mustang convertible zipping down the freeway. You're burning energy in the form of gasoline, stored chemical energy, burning it up in that motor, converting it into mechanical energy, pushing that car down the road. You lose some energy due to friction on the road. But after you get out of your long drive, what don't you do? You don't rest your hand on that hood. Right? Because it's too doggone hot. Where'd that heat come from? Well, that heat came from the rest of the energy when the gasoline was burned up because the motor's not 100% efficient and not all of it was converted into mechanical energy. About 60% of it, at least, was converted into just heat. Well, where does that heat go from that hot hood? Into the atmosphere and out into the cosmos. So that energy still exists, but it's no longer available to do work. We can't capture it to do work, but it still exists. It's out there. So that's why this curve showing that the amount of energy available to do work is decreasing. Is that clear? Yes. Okay. So the solid part of that curved line is how long we've been observing it. And it's very clear what's happening. So you take that curve, go forward, eventually all of the energy in the universe, given enough time, would equilibrate and would not be available to do work. Stars would go all out, no more light, no more energy, no more photosynthesis, everything dies. Okay, that's called a heat death. But everything would be cold. But there's not such a thing as cold. Cold is just the absence of heat. All right, so that's why they call it a heat death. But you'd freeze to death. All right, we'll take that curve backwards. So as we see by this curve that the universe is winding down as we go forward, Take the curve backward, and it shows that the universe had to have been wound up. 
just like a wristwatch. You know, you wind it, it's wound up, and then it runs down. So that means there had to be a beginning to the universe. It had to have been wound up. There had to be a beginning to it. All right, so that means the universe cannot have always existed. It had to have a beginning. And scientists cannot argue against this. They can't. They may want to, but they can't. So that only leaves the third possibility. The universe was created by an external agent. And we go back to Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. There's the answer. All right, we also see it in Psalm 74. The day is thine, the night also is thine, thou hast prepared the light and the sun. All right, so how we interpret the same evidence, everybody has the same evidence, all depends upon your assumptions, your presuppositions. So everybody, depending upon what lenses they use, looks at the same evidence but interprets it differently. Either God did it as he said in his word, or he did not. It always boils down to that. So here's a comparison. So in scripture, all, all elements were made together at the same time. Big Bang says elements beyond hydrogen and helium evolved after millions of years. Earth formed before stars, stars on day four. Earth finished being formed on day three. Evolution says Earth evolved long after the stars, several billions of years later. Plants formed before the sun because day three, scripture tells us that when God separated the dry land from the seas, he also created the plant life. Plants evolved after the sun. And since scripture says plants formed before the sun, day three versus day four, those can't be long ages or the plants wouldn't have the sun. Sun formed the day after the earth. And then the, the sun evolved before the earth. All of this is out of chapter one of Genesis, just comparing the details. Sun, moon, planets, and stars formed each uniquely. When you look at the photographs of the different moons and planets in our solar system, there is incredible variety. They are not uniform. They are not the same. They are unique. Sun, moon, and planets evolved from one cloud of gas and dust recycled from older stars, they say. Well, if it all came from one cloud of gas and dust, then everything in our solar system should rotate the same direction. But Uranus and Neptune don't. I'm sorry, Uranus and Venus don't. Venus goes the other direction from Earth. Uranus is on its side, rolling along. Some planets have moons. Jupiter and Saturn have moons that go in both directions around the planet. See, Jupiter and Saturn have moons that go in both directions around those two planets. Yeah. All right. The real Big Bang. There goes Chernyshenko trying to gain support for his little bang theory. <laughs> All right, so according to the evolutionists, the Big Bang occurred, which they can't explain where the stuff came from to go bang with. And then it's going to be the heat death with the icicles at the end. T.S. Eliot, Thomas Stearns Eliot, American born in Missouri. As a young adult, went to England, took on English citizenship. So he's known as a British poet wrote uh, in uh, 1925 a poem called The Hollow Men. And it wasn't about evolution. It was about the tremendous devastation and loss of life from World War I. But the final stanza of the poem reads this way. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. And I think this perfectly captures the evolutionary viewpoint. On the other hand, scripture says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So it's going to be fireworks in the future like this. 
as the aliens are watching the Earth go kaboom. Well, we have here a, a representation of the nucleus of a carbon atom, and there are six protons, and they're all protons are positively charged. They repel each other. They should want to be as far away from each other as possible. Just like the analogy, if you have the same north pole of two magnets, you try and push those together, you can't. I imagine most of you have done that one time or another. You can't push them together. So there's that repelling action. So what holds those nuclei, those atoms, together? We call them the strong and weak nuclear forces. We don't really understand them very well at this point in time, but we have the answer here in Colossians, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Or another translation here, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together. So Christ provides that force that holds these nuclei together, that those protons would want to repel each other. So in Second Peter there it tells us that there's going to be the Big Bang, it's coming, that the universe will be burned up. Why does the universe have to be burned up? It must be burned up. Why? Well, what was the flood all about? Judgment of sin. And what happened? The stuff got buried, right? The stuff got buried. We call fossils, for example. Well, Romans 8.22 tells us that the entire universe was affected by the fall. All things groaning in the universe. So the universe has to be burned up to get rid of all that trace, all that evidence of sin. So, because God will not allow any trace of sin into eternity. So that's why the universe must be burned up like that. So God's going to release these forces that hold the nuclei together and the whole universe is gonna be a giant atomic explosion. Not that the Big Bang has happened, it's going to happen, it's coming. So very different views of history and then eternity future. Well, scripture tells us in Luke, for example, two women grinding, one will be taken, one left. Two men in the field, one taken, another left. Philippians, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is what we need to be sharing with everybody else who doesn't yet have that peace of having salvation in Christ. I mean, that's why we're still here on the planet. That's why we're not, we're not beamed up directly into heaven when we become a Christian, so we can share this truth with others. Today in science class, I learned the Big Bang is real. But you believe in... in biblical creation, don't you? I just questioned the facts of evolution and blam, you should have seen the explosion. I was going to say, so, gravity slows down time. So that's how we can have an Earth a little over 6,000 years old and out there billions of years having gone by. Earth is at the center of the universe. There is an edge and a boundary. And as you saw that quote by uh, Wayne Gibbs, that he, evolutionists cannot argue against a universe with an edge in the center looking at the evidence. It's only on philosophical grounds that they can deny that. Only on philosophical grounds. Question. So in the, uh, when you were talking about the, the telescope and you said that when they're making the lens, there's a honeycomb underneath? Well, the honeycomb is part the lens itself okay, that's what I the lens itself that underneath the surface yeah, not, yeah. They don't it no no so imagine imagine in a honeycomb not the empty spots but the where the wax is that's where the glass is okay. 
Uh, amazing design. Oops. So when they show the pictures, like at the very beginning, like of the nebula and stuff, the different color, you know, like when you see it on the news or on science, they show like this is the latest photo from the Hubble telescope. You follow me? And they show a beautiful colored nebula or whatever. Is that accurate? Well, the light, the images from the light telescopes, and Hubble is a light telescope, as is the uh, one being built uh, down there in. Uh, Chile, what you see is what there is. Now there may be some enhancement to make it a bit sharper or something, but there are other telescopes. There are infrared telescopes, and then so they use false colors there, or there are X-ray telescopes. So, so we have telescopes for different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Okay, it's like when we use an electron beam for a microscope, electron microscope, if it's only going to be black, white, or gray. But you see pictures with colors. Those are false colors to make it easier uh, and uh, uh, easier to see. OK, so you have 17 minutes until we start again. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.